Right now in the studio is the author of The Forgotten, they're not forgotten anymore, 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Glow. William Bike is the author of that group. Welcome to WGN. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, I was on your show last year, as you remember, when the right. book came out. And uh, in the uh, subsequent year, the uh, the books won a couple of awards. For so. what? Well, uh, it won an Apex Award from an organization called Communication Concepts, which is a, a think tank about journalism outside of Washington, D.C., and also Sports Collectors Digest named it one of the uh, top 40 baseball books in 2001. So, Really? Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you very that. much. So why did you write about, you know, everyone talks about if you're old enough to talk about it and remember it, but maybe you don't have to be old enough to know about the legendary 1969 Chicago Cubs. Why the 1970 Chicago Cubs? Well, Steve, you really hit it on the head because everybody remembers the 69 Cubs, even if they weren't born then, because they were the legendary team with Ernie Banks, Ron Sano, Fergie Jenkins. Uh, but I found the 1970 Chicago Cubs a little more interesting. And Why? Some- well, because that was the year that they got Joe Pepitone, and yes. that was the year that they got <laughs> Milt Pappas. And Joe Pepitone, when they got him in midseason, he was so popular that within a couple of weeks, the Chicago Tribune actually speculated if he was going to run for mayor or not, because people really liked him that much. They did, and and he was he was quite the character, wasn't he? He was, and that's another interesting thing about the 1970 Chicago Cubs. The, the Cub management under the Wrigley family was always very conservative. They loved the ball players that had the crew cuts and who drank milk and, <laughs> you know, who, who went right home after the game and then go to the bars. And so in 1970, they threw their conservatism out the window because after they came so close in 69, um, Phil Wrigley and John Holland, who was the general manager, really yeah. wanted to win the pennant in 1970. And so for the first time ever in Cub history, they started acquiring a bunch of guys who were kind of guys with, you know, bad reputations. But uh, and teams, the the type of players that teams would let go because they were partiers and carousers. So that would they, be nothing today, though, would it? It would mean absolutely nothing today. No, yeah. no. But, you know, in, in that era, they tended to shy away from guys like that. Like, for example, in 1969, uh, Jim Bouton had a little bit of a, oh, a right. bad reputation. The guy who wrote the book Ball, Ball Four. Ball Four, which I, I read at the time. And yeah. It said somewhere in the book, I remember this, and I'm only paraphrasing, the pitcher, no idea who the pitcher was, and the pitching coach comes out and everyone wonders, you know, what are they really talking about? And according to Boughton, anyway, the pitching coach said, I don't know what city they were in, they were on the road, they weren't in Houston, which of course, Houston just won the World Series. Yeah. So, so the pitching coach reportedly said, uh, this restaurant is really good for dinner, you want to meet there tonight? <laughs> And that's, I don't know that that's true. I wonder if that's the kind of thing. And now, they put their glass over. So if you can lead, read lips, you still can't because you can't even see their lips. Yeah, the cameras weren't that good then. You couldn't really hone in and, and read the lips. So they better better watch what they're saying now. But yeah, Jim Bouton, so he wrote the book Ball Four, but he wrote it during the 1969 season and it came out in 1970. And early in 69, 
the Cubs were thinking about acquiring Bouton, but then they decided not to pull the trigger because he had the reputation. They called guys clubhouse lawyers, you know, guys who, you know, just kind of mouthed it off a lot. And so they didn't want to get Jim Bouton in 69. 70, they threw that conservatism out the window. So it started when they got uh, J.C. Martin in spring training when Randy Hundley got uh, injured. Because, what was crazy about J.C. Martin? Well, just the, him, just the fact that he was a member of the hated 1969 Mets. Oh, right. And J.C. Okay. Martin was one of the heroes of uh, the 69 World Series because it was a, a Martin hit that actually won one of the games for the Mets in 69 in the but series. But he was like a 220 hitter. I mean, He was a 220 hitter, but the thing about Randy Hundley is he really knew how to handle pitchers. And so besides Randy, the Cubs had uh, some young... Ken young, Ken Rudolph, exactly. Uh, And uh, they had a guy named Randy Bob who never actually made it to the major league. So Randy Bob was actually the guy that they traded to the Mets for J.C. Martin. But the fact that the Cubs uh, would actually trade for one of the hated Mets kind of made the sports writers stand up and take notice and say, ah, this isn't going to be like a normal Cubs season. So uh, about a month later, they got a pitcher named Steve Barber, who had been good with the Baltimore Orioles in the early 60s, and he had the reputation of being a partier, and so that was the type of guy that the Cubs normally wouldn't get. But he wasn't that good. Uh, he wasn't that— no, Pappas, another story. He was quite good. Pappas is another story, and when Pappas uh, took Joe Decker's spot in the rotation, because the fourth starter in the beginning of the season was Joe Decker, who was a rookie, and Leo DeRocher hated rookies, so he only used— <laughs> He only used Decker because he absolutely had to. But when they got didn't Decker turn out to be a decent pitcher elsewhere? Well, that was the thing. The Cubs had all these rookies in 1970: Joe Decker, Larry Gura, Jim Colburn. They all had fantastic careers, but for other teams. So, <laughs> That's so Joe, a problem. Yes. Joe Decker uh, was a, a good pitcher for the uh, Minnesota Twins in the 70s. Larry Gura, you know, he was in the playoffs every year for the Kansas City Royals. Yes. He won 18 a couple of times. And uh, Jim Colburn, who they traded for, Jose Cardinal. Colburn won 20 games for the Milwaukee Brewers uh, one year, too. But... Uh, Pappas really settled down that rotation, and so with the rotation of Fergie Jenkins, Ken Holzman, Bill Hands, and Milt Pappas, it's actually considered one of the ten best pitching rotations really? uh, since about 1950. Yeah, and Pappas threw a new hitter. No, what did I say? New hitter? A no hitter? Correct. Pappas threw his no hitter in 1972, and I was actually at 72. that game. What? Yeah. Really? So, uh, so actually, in that era. You know, all of us kids, I was like 12 years old in, in 69, 13, and 1970. Cubs had Ladies' Day back then. And so that was a really popular thing but for them. isn't every day a Ladies' Day? <laughs> well, the thing is, back now then— Now you know the secret to my marriage. There you go. Back then, the, the ladies got in, in free on Ladies' Day. What? Yeah. So— uh, some years it was on Thursday. Some years it was on Friday. And now, 19- can you imagine—I'm I'm interrupting, but I, this leads me to the next point— can you imagine the Chicago Cubs of today letting anyone, maybe, I don't know, do babies get in free? <laughs> but do, do they, I mean, you could be 170 years old. They're not going to let you in free. I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. That's all around Major League Baseball now. There's no Ladies' Day anymore. There's no, you know, so back then when there was Ladies' Day, the moms got in for free. And us kids who were under 14 got in on a kid's ticket. There's no kid's ticket anymore. I remember we did. And that was a dollar. So, you know, our moms would take us kids, you know, pack sandwiches. And I don't think the moms spent more than $5 in a day, probably even less than that. If the moms even went. I mean, how old did you, I mean, under 13 or 13? Because at that time, you it was safe to go anywhere. You could ride. Oh, I mean, yeah. I remember I maybe it was a whole $2. It might have been more money because I'm, I might be a bit younger. But, I mean, I'm old enough to know that... 
You can get bleacher seats right then, right there. Bleacher, and it was only a couple bucks. Bleacher seats were, were a buck back then, yeah, because Phil Wrigley, when he owned the team, he believed absolutely that there should be a certain amount of tickets available every day for the people who wake up in the morning and decide, I want to go to the ball game today. So there were so many non-reserved seats in those days, and they just don't have that anymore. Well, that's true everywhere. But I want to talk about how Wrigley Field itself has changed. We'll talk more about the 1970s Chicago Cubs, too. And, oh my gosh, happy to talk to you. 312-981-7200. You can text, you can call if you so desire. William Bike is the author of the book, The Forgotten, now we're not forgetting, <laughs> The Forgotten 1970s Chicago Cubs. Talking to William Bike here, the author of The Forgotten 1970s Chicago Cubs. And you've, you had recently... In interaction, so I talk to Vicky Santo all the time because Ron Santo, uh, she created the Ron Santo Diabetic Alert Dog Foundation, which is uh-huh. an amazing, amazing nonprofit organization. I wish, I wish that the Chicago Cubs would bring her back and say, we want to spend a day focusing on this. They have a day for everything. Yeah. They have pickle day at the ballpark or whatever. <laughs> you know, they've got a day for... Why not that? That's... Can you think of a better cause, you know? No, and, I can't think and, of a better cause. Right. And and one one day, I don't know, about three years ago or so, before the pandemic, obviously, uh, they did do that at that point. And Ferguson Jenkins was there, who's like a cheerleader. I guess he and Santa were very good buds. They were, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All those all those guys from that era, sixty seven to seventy three, the you know, it's the William Santo, Santo Jenkins, uh, you know, Billy Williams. Yep. Yeah, Billy Huntley. Williams. Yeah, exactly. All, and Beckert. And and those guys always say that they were like super close. So yeah. when there'd be an old timers game, it was like brothers getting together. Billy Williams, we yeah. should mention too. Exactly. And, and uh, Fergie, it turns out, said, I want a copy of this guy's book. He did, yeah. So I had an interaction with Fergie on uh, Facebook, and he wanted a copy of my book. And so I said, well, I got to get your address then. So he actually took a, a picture of his, of a return address label with his phone, and he sent it to me. So uh, I'd know where to send his book. Did he say anything about the book? He hasn't said anything about the Uh-oh. book, uh, you know, since I gave it to him, but... Uh, I was also on a uh, Facebook, uh, Fergie and uh, Andre Dawson were on like a Facebook web- webinar where people could write in and ask them questions. And so uh, most people weren't really, you know, asking him questions. They were saying like, oh, I remember, you know, sitting in the bleachers when Andre Dawson was playing and stuff like that. So I asked a question and Fergie liked it. So he answered that one right away. And I asked him the question, uh, we know Randy Hundley was your favorite catcher. Who was your second favorite catcher? Now, oh. I expected he might have said Jim Sundberg because Fergie had his best season with the Texas Rangers in, in uh, 1974. He might have said Carlton Fisk, um, who uh, Fergie pitched for the Boston Red Sox in the late 70s. He didn't say Paul Lisnick, I'll tell you that. <laughs> he would not because Paul Lisnick can't catch a thing, <laughs> including a funny line. Now, uh, today's Chicago Cubs... You, you, for me, I run by or walk by Wrigley Field, and it does not look the same because they have this monstrosity right at Sheffield and Addison. That's one of the gambling companies. I don't know. Right. It doesn't matter which one. Yeah. Uh, and it's a building. I don't even know how they got away with it. I mean, Wrigley Field's a landmark building, and I'm told, I'm told because there was some separation of five feet or something, and if that, between what are really two separate buildings. 
they didn't include it as a part of Wrigley Field, even though it's right there. It's like a foot away or three feet away or whatever it is. Yeah, when I was when I was a kid, and you know, when my book was set, the nineteen seventy uh, book about the nineteen seventy Chicago Cubs, that was actually a coal yard next to Wrigley Field. Now you think about this. Where was that? Uh, it's directly west of Wrigley Field, so it was between Clark Street and Wrigley Field. There was actually a coal yard there. If you look on the internet, you can find really? find pictures of it. Yeah, and so you think about it, it was a coal yard uh, with these big towers that, that contained, you know, like liquefied coal. This was right next to a stadium that sat 40,000 people. Nothing could have possibly gone wrong, right? Well, actually, <laughs> actually it didn't, but... Uh, you know, Phil Wrigley was kind of slow on the uptake, realizing that he should have bought, you know, property, property around there. And, and by the time he went to buy more up, you know, developers had, had bought a lot of the property. But anyway, the Cubs were eventually able to acquire that area that used to be the coal yard. They used it as a, a parking area for right. a long time. Right. And, you know, now there's, there's you know, cool stuff there. There's statues and, yeah, and grass and stuff. Gallagher Way, and they show movies. They yeah. have, they're about to have a Christmas yeah. market, I believe. And that is all wonderful on that side of the ballpark. But yeah. you haven't addressed what I asked about. Yeah. And that is this monstrosity that's right in front of Wrigley Field, right there in your face. Exactly. And people who come in from out of town to see beautiful Wrigley Field. They're not seeing beautiful Wrigley Field there. Now, you're you're right about that. It's the Sportsbook Annex. It's a three-story, 22,000-square-foot building. Uh Definitely different than the uh, renovations that the Cubs used to do because what they tended to do, and particularly uh, when Phil Wrigley on the team, renovations in Wrigley Field would be for fan comfort and fan safety. Yeah. And so it, after the uh, 69 season, they spent about $750,000 in the offseason, which would be the equivalent of $6 million today for fan comfort. So. This, you know, the sportsbook annex, as you're talking about, that's not for fan comfort. That's for money. gambling. It's for money. But, you know, everybody's doing it. and, and It doesn't make it right. It doesn't and, make and it right. But put those, it down the block somewhere. That's fine. Yeah. But not right at the ballpark. No, I see which, what you're saying. Which, by the way, is not cheap to go to no. uh, by any stretch of the imagination. No. Uh, do you think that there's... I mean, I live in the community. And yeah. to me, there's an absolute disconnection between the ownership of the team, and people who live nearby. Well, uh, and I've got friends in the community. I actually didn't used to live too far from there. I used to live within walking distance of Wrigley Field Mm -hmm. myself. And uh, if you remember Comiskey Park in the 1970s under Bill Vack, they called it the world's biggest open saloon. (laughs) And then when Reinsdorf and Einhorn bought the team, they wanted to make it a more family-friendly atmosphere like Wrigley Field was. And so... When the Tribune took over the uh, Chicago Cubs uh, in the 1980s, that kind of came to, became the world's biggest open saloon. So it was really a, a drinking atmosphere both in the park and outside the park, you know, with the bars, too. Now, you know, some of the bars are still there. Some of the bars are gone, you know, because of the pandemic. We were talking about that during the break. But there's also stuff around there like, you know, climbing walls and, and indoor golf courses and stuff like that. So the neighborhood, whether the Cub management has anything to do with that or not, it's becoming more family friendly, just like the neighborhood was, you know, back in the 60s mm-hmm. and, and early 70s. With the hotels there and with uh, VRBO and things like that, it's really become a tourist destination. And so people who live in Wrigleyville that I talk to also feel a little safer there now because the tour- <laughs> well. You may well, disagree. you haven't been reading the news. And that has <laughs> nothing to do, one way or the other, with the Cubs. That has everything to do with whatever is going yeah, on in yeah. Chicago now. I, we're running out of time. I just want to say thank you for coming in. William Bike, 
uh, the author of The Forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs. Thank you very much, and we'll have you on again. You're a great well, guest. thank You're you, Steve. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Next week, Frida Payne is on this show, bringing in her band of gold and legendary radio performer. Let me see if I could do this. Fred Winston. Something like that. Uh, John Hansen is next right here on WGN. And then Andy Mazer, Hamp and OB, will talk about and explain what went on, what did go on with the Chicago Bears today.